to Little Known History of Sydney. I'm Ilana Penderose. And I'm Dr Robert Jones. You can find this podcast on SoundCloud and on iTunes under History of Sydney. This week, we are talking about the history of Central Station. It was a wise man who once said that whilst we shape our buildings, thereafter they shape us. And if one considers the multitude of historically significant buildings in Sydney, none does more to emphasise this truth than Central Railway Station, located at the southern end of Sydney CBD in the historically rich suburb of Haymarket. Completed on the 4th of August 1906 with just 11 platforms, the station is today Australia's busiest, with 25 platforms servicing both the city lines and beyond, with an estimated patronage of around 12 million passenger movements per year. Acting as one of Sydney's most important transport terminals, incorporating train, light rail, bus and taxi services, Central Station is housed in a large sandstone structure, designed in the classical style by the prolific English-born architect Walter Liberty Vernon. Fulfilling both a practical and an aesthetic need within the framework of Sydney society, The station today stands as a piece of living history, reflecting this city's past, present and future. Dr Jones, give us some insights into the origins of this site. Was there a central station before 1906? Yes, as you say, the building we know today was completed uh, around five years after the Federation of the Colonies and in response to a very real need for a larger, more integrated rail and transport hub for a city that was really rapidly on the rise, going from a population of around 500,000 in 1901 to well over a million 20 years later. Now, if we look at the broader origins of the site, at the role it fulfills in overcoming the infamous tyranny of distance we know so well within this vast continent, we actually need to go back 50 years further, 50 years before that first train goes steaming into the station in 1906, to 1849 and the incorporation of the Sydney Railway Company by the New South Wales colonial government. Uh, This was a transitional time for the colony. Uh, Up until 1855, it had been governed for better or worse from Britain, with uh, the governor effectively acting as an autocrat on Westminster's behalf. In 1824, we see the establishment of Australia's oldest governing body, the New South Wales Legislative Council, beginning with five members, all appointed by the governor, and swelling to over 50 members by 1851, of whom some 36 were elected by the adult property-owning males who were then the only voters. In 1835, the Australian poet, explorer, journalist and politician William Charles Wentworth helps to establish the Australian Patriotic Association to campaign for colonial self-government. It's thanks to the work of influential figures like Wentworth that we also see the suspension of penal transportation to Australia in 1840, with the last convicts arriving in Sydney a decade later. The discovery of gold in rural New South Wales in 1851 accelerates the changes taking place, heralding a new, more optimistic, more democratic period in the history of Sydney. And it's during this decade that the New South Wales Constitution Act is steered successfully through the British Parliament, establishing a a two-tiered system of self-government for the colony, consisting of both the aforementioned Legislative Council, appointed by the Governor, and a legislative assembly appointed by those with the right to vote. Self-government, of course, did not necessarily mean breaking the connection with Britain entirely, but simply reorientating the relationship so that the interests of Australians, who could not have been more 
proud nor more heavily dependent on their British roots at this stage could be more effectively met. Much of what the new government did in Sydney during this seminal period was actually based on the British example. Many Australians even believed with the explosion in population that took place following the first gold rushes that their country might one day rival the old country in population and influence and this gives us some indication of just how bright the future must have seen to early champions of Australian democracy. If we look at what was going on in Britain at this stage, what we see is a rapid growth in many key industries, including coal mining, steel manufacture, textiles and so on, fueled by a series of technological breakthroughs, one of which was of course the advent of the steam locomotive, first seen in action in Britain in the early 1800s. Now, still struggling to find their economic feet in a distant land, Australians would have to wait until 1831 for their first railway, in the form of a cast iron Fishbelly Rail, operated by the uh, Australian Agricultural Company in Newcastle. Cast iron was notoriously brittle and was obsolete by British standards even then, given the advent of the far superior wrought iron rails the previous decade. The next call would be for a passenger service, this time in Sydney, and it was during the late 1840s when there was an explosion in railway building taking place in Britain that the New South Wales colonial government began to seriously consider the feasibility of establishing a line between Sydney City and Granville, which was then a key agricultural centre. After a series of full starts, the Legislative Council finally succeeds in encouraging the establishment of the Sydney Railway Company, a private firm tasked with constructing and running the new service. Why a private firm, you might ask? Well, up until the mid-20th century, British railways were all privately owned and run and it was expected that the railways in Australia would thrive in precisely the same way. The first company in Melbourne, I think, was private as well. This, however, was not to be the case in Sydney, as the Sydney Railway Company quickly ran into trouble raising capital, finding itself unable to recruit the necessary labour it needs. Its difficulties in completing the proposed line from Sydney to Granville were further compounded by a number of engineering blunders, including two unnecessary changes of rail gauge by rival engineers, who each believed that their own national standard was best. And it's not until September 1855, some two years after Melbourne acquired its first railway, that we see the first trains pulling into Sydney Station. Victoria had only recently emerged as a colony in its own right, and I think we can see this as an early example of the rivalry that was soon to emerge between what were then the two most well-entrenched colonies. In the beginning... The original 22-kilometre Sydney to Granville Railway had stations in Sydney, Newtown, Ashfield, Burwood, Homebush and Parramatta. The Sydney station, which formed the key terminal from which future lines would sprout, was then located south of what is today Central Station, with Devonshire Street marking its northern boundary. Known, somewhat confusingly, as Redfern Station, this structure originally consisted of a single wooden platform in a corrugated iron shed before it was rebuilt in bricks in 1874. Despite its expansion to accommodate 14 platforms by 1901, the station was still proving inadequate for the amount of passenger traffic it had to accommodate. Worse still, it was poorly situated, and in 1888, the then Railway Commissioner, Edward Eddy Millegard, began lobbying the New South Wales colonial government under Sir Henry Parks for a station that was closer to the city. Following a royal commission in 1891, 
and a reconstitution of the way in which the railways were ministered, it was determined that a new station would need to be constructed further north between Eddy Avenue and Elizabeth Street. This area, however, was far from disused. Dr Jones, is it true that Central Station was built on the site of a former cemetery? Yes, as well as occupying a site that once boasted a convent, a female refuge, a police barracks, a parsonage and a benevolent society, Central is also distinguished for occupying ground that was once Devonshire Street Cemetery, first established around 1820 and formally closed to new burials in 1867. Uh, space was not normally an issue for what was still a fairly humble city at this stage. But in this case, there was really no option. The station had to be built, and it had to be built in a central location. And it just so happened that there was a cemetery blocking its path. Now, although I have come across many stories relating to so-called ghosts in Central Station, I would emphasise that there aren't known bodies under the site today. All the corpses were disinterred in 1901, just prior to the construction of the station, and relocated to a number of other sites, including Rookwood Cemetery in Sydney's West, and Waverley Cemetery, where one of our previous subjects, Henry Lawson, currently resides. This was not an altogether unpopular move at the time, given the negative press the cemetery had been receiving for its imposition on what was a very busy part of the city, but it still kind of gone down terribly well when the government, who was obliged to foot the bill of all relocating all the graves, gave the living representatives of those in the cemetery two months to arrange for their friends and relatives to be relocated. Graves that remained unclaimed were relocated to Bunurong Cemetery at La Perouse, which was purpose-built for the task, complete with a tram line to make the transportation of caskets easier. Elements of this site were later absorbed during the 1970s into what is now Pioneer Memorial Park, so-called because it contained some of Sydney's earliest inhabitants. Now, Central Station was designed by an English-born architect, Walter Liberty Vernon. What can you tell us about him, Dr Jones? Given its extensive history, I think it would be difficult to identify Central Station with one specific individual. If we cast our mind back to the colonial period, there will certainly be a number of names I would be inclined to cite, including James Wallace and William Randall, who together designed and built the first Sydney to Granville Railway, which we talked about. Another would be the last serving colonial architect of New South Wales, James Barnett, who designed, among other important buildings, the Mortuary Station on Sydney's Rookwood Cemetery railway line today known as Regent Street Station. These architects and engineers, along with the bureaucrats like the aforementioned Railway Commissioner Edward Millegaard, after whom Eddie Avenue was named, are some of the least known individuals in the early history of Sydney, and I think it would be well worth returning to some of their careers in future episodes. Now, if I had to name one man who was responsible, more than any other, for the design and orientation of Sydney's Central Railway Station, it would of course be Walter Liberty Vernon, who began his career as an architect in London during the 1860s, before emigrating to New South Wales on the advice of his doctor due to the impacts of England's high level of pollution on his asthma. Here Vernon established a private practice, but later joined the government architect's branch, which was shortly to receive a large funding increase due to the depression which hit Sydney in the 1890s. Favouring what would today be called a federation style of architecture, which was simply a reinterpretation of the Victorian theme popular in England during this time, Vernon designed a slew of small public buildings from police stations to schools. On a grander scale, he dropped plans for the Art Gallery of New South Wales, the Mitchell Library and Newcastle Courthouse, this time in a classical style, they would also employ in the design of Central Railway Station. 
He designed a number of additions to existing buildings, including the Customs House, which we'll be returning to in a later episode, and he coordinated the public decoration of Sydney during the Federation celebrations of 1901. Vernon retired from public office in 1911 and died not long after in 1914. If we look today, there are around 50 of his buildings on the register of the National Estate. Central Station was officially opened on the 4th of August 1906, taking its first passengers the following day. The last train from the old 1874 station departed from Platform 5 at midnight, whilst the first train arrived at the new station at 5.50am on the same morning. Devonshire Street, which marked the main boundary between the new and the old station, would soon become a major public thoroughfare, known today as the Devonshire Street Tunnel. Central Station, when it first opened, possessed 11 platforms, but that was soon expanded to accommodate 19 by 1913. As yet, the sole form of transport was by steam locomotive, many of which would continue to operate long after the advent of electrified railways in the 1920s. Up until the First World War, the station was able to function without major incident, until a group of Australian soldiers in training paid a visit to the site in 1916. Dr Jones, tell us about the event often described as the Battle of Central Station. This incident, which is also referred to incidentally as the Liverpool Riot of 1916, involved thousands of Australian servicemen stationed near Liverpool in south-west Sydney. The Australian Imperial Force, as the Australian Army was referred to during the First World War, had retained a presence around Liverpool since 1903 as one of its main training centres. By 1916, the base there was home to around 6,000 troops. Now, on the morning of the 14th of February 1916, Valentine's Day, they received news that their training hours were being extended, and in addition to a number of other grievances that had surfaced there in recent times, this served to push many of them to go out on strike. This in itself sounds fairly rational, fairly organised, fairly civilised. But the reality of this decision was that the majority of the soldiers left their camp, proceeding to a number of pubs and hotels where they demanded free liquor. It wasn't long before the whole town was overrun, and from 1pm soldiers begin boarding trains at Liverpool Station on course for Sydney. It might sound slightly farcical, but some of the troops were actually alleged to have overpowered the engineers thereby taking direct control of the trains on which they were travelling. It wasn't too long thereafter that the police were finally able to restore order around Liverpool, but at 2pm the first train transporting drunk and disorderly soldiers arrives at Central Station. Leaving the station, they head up George Street, marching as if on parade, one newspaper said. They raided fruit carts, throwing some of the stolen fruit at vehicles and passers-by. And by 2.30pm, there are an estimated 3,000 soldiers at large in the CBD. Some of the troops broke down the door of the evening news and demanded that the poster in the window of the office which read, Riot at Liverpool, be changed to strike at Liverpool. Others vented their anger on what they perceived to be the enemy in the form of German-owned businesses like the German Club on Phillips Street. The reason this incident is sometimes referred to as the Battle of Central Station is that later that night, after having been confronted by members of the Metropolitan Police, a group of around 100 soldiers began firing their weapons over their head. Returning fire, the policemen shot and killed Troop Ernest William Keith, thereby bringing what, up until then at least, had been a relatively bloodless riot to an abrupt end. In the coming days, 279 men were discharged from the army, 
while 36 were convicted in state courts. Many of the bullet holes that had appeared in the walls of Central Station were filled in with putty over time, but there is at least one that's still visible, I believe, in the marble opposite the entrance to Platform 1. The infamous result of the riot, which actually gave ammunition to the temperance movement of the period, in spite of the fact that it originated in a dispute over training hours, was the pubs were forced to close their doors in New South Wales at 6pm, and this would remain in force all the way up to 1955, when the hours were extended to 10pm. It is perhaps a little-known fact that the original 1906 indicator board from Central Station, listing platforms and times for departure, is today on display as part of a permanent transport exhibit at Sydney's Powerhouse Museum. Dr Jones, can you give us some insight into this artefact? Having been constructed by the signal interlocking shop of the New South Wales Government Railways Department in 1906, this indicator board, which is incredibly grand and beautiful to look at, even aside from its practicality, served Central Station for over three quarters of a century. On it, one finds platform numbers, departure times and station times at which the various trains would be stopping. And given how often platforms were added and altered in and around the station, it's really a testament to the craftsmanship of those that tended it that it was successfully altered to accommodate changes as they arose. In 1945, the government, in its wisdom, opted to alter the style of the board from its original Walter Liberty Vernon-inspired classical design to more of an Art Deco theme offset by fluorescent lighting within a canopy at the top. In 1982, the State Rail Authority finally and reluctantly decided that it was time to replace this mechanically operated board with television monitors, and in order to preserve it, the government places it in the care of the Powerhouse Museum. After some discussion and a great deal of research, the museum decides to restore the board to the style in which it appeared in 1937, prior to its Art Deco makeover, and in 1988, it's finally unveiled as the centrepiece of a new transport exhibit. This is also the decade, incidentally, when murals first start appearing on the walls of the Devonshire Street Commuter Tunnel. As part of the construction of Sydney's new electrified railways during the 1920s, Central Station underwent a significant refit, with the existing infrastructure being cut back to 15 platforms, whilst a further eight new platforms were constructed on the station's eastern side, with a six-track bridge paralleling Elizabeth to Goulburn Street being added to the north. On the 3rd of March, 1921, some seven years after the death of the station's original architect, Walter Liberty Vernon, a 75-metre clock tower was finally added to the northwestern corner of the station in the same free classical style as the rest of the building. In February 1926, platforms 18 and 19 became the first to be wired for electric trains, with a successful demonstration taking place on a journey from Sydney to Hurstville. Other platforms would later follow, and by the 1950s, almost all of the platforms at Central bore electric-powered trains. In 1948, construction commenced on four underground platforms, two of which were intended for use on the eastern suburbs and Illawarra lines, whilst the other two would have serviced an airport line that was never constructed. By the time these were finally completed, in 1979, therefore, it was determined that the two latter platforms, that of Platform 26 and 27, would not be needed. Dr Jones, what became of these disused platforms? Are they still there? What purpose do they serve? Yes, I think what? 
many people don't realise is that the reason that the lift down to the eastern suburbs near Lawarra Lines takes so long at Central is that it's actually passing two secret platforms located directly above them, which have never actually been used. Uh, even when an airport line was finally constructed in the run-up to the Sydney Olympic Games in 2000, the platforms were still not employed given their inability to bear the weight of modern trains. Uh, Off-limits to the general public, uh, the sole evidence, I believe, that one has that these platforms even exist when commuting via the station lies in the lifts, where one will find an incongruous button which reads Platform 26 to 27. The ghosts of Central Station, therefore, if any really exist, lie on or in these deserted platforms, which I believe have been employed at various times for archival storage by the Public Transport Commission, formed in 1972, shortly thereafter known as the State Railway Authority and more recently as Rail Corps. There are a number of tours which take people through these areas, including a network of other deserted tunnels that exist under Central, including old offices and even a jail cell for holding prisoners in transit. Depending on how you look at it, really, it can either be a compelling slice of forgotten history or, to some, a testament to poor government planning. Uh, I prefer to see it as yet another example of the way in which a city with a comparatively short history compared to many others can still deliver its fair share of surprises, and I'm sure there will be plenty more to come as we delve even more deeply into the history of Sydney in episodes yet to come. This is Little Known History of Sydney. I'm Ilana Penderose. And I'm Dr Robert Jones. And we will see you next time.